Welcome to The Pasho Perspective, a place where I share my perspective on everything in the space between life and death. I'm your host, Pasho. Well, my Pachos Chachos, as promised, today we're going to get into some literature. I'll be reading to you for the next couple of weeks, Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare, or the most excellent and lamentable tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, if you want to look at the original title, it's pretty cool. Uh, But before we can get into the play, we have to read the prologue, which is kind of an introduction to the play to give the audience an idea um, as to what they're going to be looking at, uh, establishing uh, the Dane, the setting, Uh, the background information that's necessary to understand the conflict and the characters in the story. And it also tells you, you know, how long the play is as well. And so uh, we have to read that part. It is written by a character known as the Chorus, uh, which, as it sounds, could be uh, many people or it could be one, depending on how the person producing the play wants to do it. But I believe it was read by one person during his time. And so they would come up on stage and, of course, from memory, recite these lines. And we'll break down what the lines mean in a second. I'm first going to read them to you. Uh, And then I'm also going to kind of help you figure out how to dissect sonnets since the prologues uh, of Acts 1 and 2 are all written in the Shakespearean sonnet format, which I'll talk a little bit Uh, as well. But first, let's enjoy some literature, shall we? Two houses, both alike in dignity in fair Verona, where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife, The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end naught could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage. The which, if you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. So what in the world did William Shakespeare say? (laughs) It's usually the question I ask my freshmen, and all of them give me the same kind of confused response, although my smart students kind of know that in the book, if they look at the right-hand margins, it gives them a little interpretation uh, of the major lines in the play. And so, you know, before we read this, of course, I always suggest that they do the same thing. Uh, We're here, obviously, we don't have those notes, so let me then give you my perspective of what I think this means, all right? Um, So first of all, when it comes to a sonnet, right, what is a sonnet? Right? So a sonnet is a specific poetry form. It is always, well, when we're talking about the Shakespearean, also known as Elizabethan, also known as English sonnet, we're talking about a 14-line sonnet with a very specific meter of iambic pentameter, meaning that basically there are 10 syllables per line, starting with an unstressed syllable and then ending with a stressed syllable, which I wouldn't concern myself about too much. Usually meter back in the day, as I was told, 
uh, by a very fantastic woman, Shirley Council, said that, you know, meter was first established for the military to kind of give marching beats to the soldiers as they were walking. And of course, reciting literature, you know, not only makes you strong through the marching, but intelligent as well, and definitely more interesting in a conversation. But back to the point. Uh, so it's an iambic pentameter, and there is a very specific rhyme scheme of A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. Now, what does that mean? Well, when you look at the first line in a poem, the very last word, and technically the last syllable sound, uh, you attribute it a letter in the alphabet. And being the first letter then in the poem, you attribute it the first letter in the alphabet. And so we always start... Every single poem, whatever the word may be, or last syllable, as it were, uh, it's always going to be attributed the letter A. And if the next line then rhymes with it, it would also attribute be attributed the letter A. Uh, but if it introduces a new sound, then you go through the alphabet, right? And so uh, at the end of line one, you have the word dignity, which rhymes with mutiny, right? So you have A and A. Lines two and four are seen and unclean. Then you have foes and overthrows, life and strife, love and remove. Uh, one of my students actually a few years ago uh, did some research and found that the way they pronounced love back in the day was as louve. And so back in Shakespeare's time, louve, I louve you and remove would then uh, rhyme with each other, where I guess today we would kind of call it a slant rhyme because it's close, but it's not really true and pure. Then we get followed with rage and stage, and we always end a sonnet with a heroic couplet, in this case, attend and mend, to kind of give a finality. Uh, you might notice in other plays that uh, when a character is exiting uh, the stage, they usually exit in a heroic couplet, you know, with two rhyming words to kind of finish the thought, and then I get to leave. Reminds me a little bit of like George Costanza from Friends, you know, in that episode where he tells a joke, he gets a good laugh from everybody, and then he leaves because he's like, all right, George is out, right? Got to go out while you're on top, baby, while everybody's laughing and having a good time. Uh, and so I think Shakespeare kind of did the same thing. Um, I doubt Seinfeld borrowed it from Shakespeare, but I think it's pretty uh, funny that there are some similarities in, you know, a classic TV show that I would consider a classic TV show and then uh, some classic literature written by Shakespeare. But anyway, back to the point. So you have the specific rhyme scheme, you have the meter. So now how do we make sense then of a sonnet? Well, my suggestion to my students and to you all in the world is you break it down using the rhyme scheme, right? We don't go to the over the rhyme scheme for nothing. There is certainly something that it does. And so when you look at the first set of letters, A, B, A, B, right, which is your first quatrain of ideas. Do not be confused. There are not quatrains because those would be independent stanzas, but I call it a quatrain of ideas. The first four lines establish either a problem or situation or it asks you a question, All right? Like in Sonnet 18, shall I compare thee to a summer's day, right? In this case, there's establishing a situation, two households that are both alike in dignity. So what does that mean? Well, you have two families, right? Two households. And they are both pretty much respected in fair Verona where we lay our scene, right? Shakespeare's very to the point, I guess you could say, um, in those first two lines. But then we continue on with the other A, B, A, B. 
from ancient grudge, right? So we have this old fight that has been happening for a while is breaking now to new mutiny, right? And new mutiny means that the younger generations of these two households are bringing back that fight, you know? And to, to kind of make it clear to my students in my class, I usually compare this to, um, to baseball. You know, if you're, uh, if you're a New York Yankees fan, you are not a Boston Red Sox fan. And without knowing, you know, even as a child, you are kind of taught subliminally by your family. You know, if you're like me and you, you love your family and you, you follow the same teams as your father does, so you have some something to cheer uh, together about. But, um, you know, when you're a Yankees fan, uh, which I'm not, but I'm just using this as an example, go White Sox. Uh, if you're a Yankees fan... Um, the Red Sox are in the same division. And so it doesn't make sense to like both of them because if the Red Sox win, it means that the Yankees didn't win the division, right? And usually because they're in the same division, they have to go against each other more times than you would against other teams. And, you know, they can bring your record down or, you know, increase their lead from first place. And and so then you don't get to win the division and possibly not make the playoffs. And so, you know, it's a serious thing, you know, being a Yankees fan or a Red Sox fan, you know, obviously would be vice versa. And the same thing for all the other teams on uh, in that division. I don't really care about who they are right now, so I'm not going to think about it. But, uh, you know, you would imagine you're not going to like those teams that prevent your team from becoming number one. And so here in Romeo and Juliet, you know, the kids kind of in the same way that I, you know, picked up my bias as a White Sox fan. And as a White Sox fan, then I don't like the Indians. I don't like the Tigers. I don't like the Royals. I certainly don't like the Yankees. Um because, you know, New York and Chicago has always been a competition with each other. Best pizza, best hot dog, best city, you know, skyline, etc. cetera. Uh, but anyway, uh, and so here in Romeo and Juliet, you know, these kids, without even knowing when it started, just began hating the other family, you know, because of uh, perhaps the two fathers, maybe even older than that. You know, it's never really established why the Capulets, uh, which is Juliet's family, and the Montagues, which is Romeo's family, uh, you never find out why they don't like each other. You don't You don't really know. Uh, I know there's a short story out there called Duty, D-U-T-Y, uh, written by uh, a woman author. I, I should really do my research before doing this. But anyway, she offers up a really cool explanation as to what happened, you know, and it's almost like a, a soap opera where uh, the two men, right, uh, Lord Montague and Lord Capulet, were in love with Lady Capulet, but uh, she was betrothed, right, without love, or probably didn't even get asked. Her father, I think, just kind of handed her, as was the tradition, to Lord Capulet, and she became his property, right, back in those days. It's kind of how women were. They were arm candy. They were uh, a cover to a book, as we'll soon discover in Act One, the way that Juliet's mom puts it, but... You know, back in those days, you know, we have to remember it's not our time. You know, they didn't marry for love per se, although I'm sure some people did. But, you know, it was an interaction. It was a negotiation with a dowry and in exchange for title or landship or land or, um, you know, things like that. And so she kind of alludes to the fact that Lady Capulet didn't want to marry Lord Capulet. She wanted to marry Lord Montague. And because of that, the jealousy between the two men and that Capulet got her, but Montague loved her, you know, and she loved Montague, but was given then to Capulet, you know, that whole triangle thing really, uh, it was the basis of the, of the fight. I mean, I don't know. 
for all I know, one guy might have farted, you know, in the direction of the other one and just left a, a, a bad taste in his mouth. And ever since then, he just hated him. Or, you know, maybe he voted for Trump. And so he'll never forgive him for that. Um, but seriously, it, it's something like that, right? There's there's this petty argument. And it is petty, as we'll see later in the play, that even, you know, uh, some of the characters acknowledge it's really silly that we're fighting anyway. You know, it shouldn't be too too bad for two old guys to just give up this fight. And so whether they started it, whether their parents started it and they inherited then the animosity towards the other family, that is what is being established here, right? Um, Shakespeare wants us to know that they are well-respected, equally respected in Verona. And their children are about to reignite this uh, this feud, Right. Because I would imagine as they're, you know, getting married, having children, you know, life gets in its way. And so they are not focused on their enemies. They're focused on what they're doing. And, you know, I think after whatever began the fight and the animosity towards the other family, for them, at least, I think it went by the wayside. Um, but their children now are of an age uh, where they're going to start peacocking, as I like to call it, you know, where the young men are going to become boastful and you know, they're turning into men and they have something to prove and they want to show that they are men of value, of honor, of courage, of strength, you know, and so kind of walking around, right, with their peacocks going out there, you know, with the feathers sticking out, getting attention, you know, they got something to prove. They want to test their mettle against the other men that are there to show that they are the better ones, you know, and so because they have been taught to hate the other side, then the other side becomes that target where I can exude my power and my strength to show off to people who might be in the market for a man like myself. Well, not me. I mean, the characters in the play, obviously, I'm married and happily married. Thank you, baby. Um, so that's the first quatrain, right? He's establishing the setting. Um, and then in line four, I forgot to mention line four, so let me get back to that. It says, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. Now, the civil means civilians. The other people who are not Montague or Capulet are starting to have to get their hands dirty, too. I mean, imagine you're in the middle of a plaza, a fight breaks out, somebody crashes into you. What are you going to do? Right? You're not just going to walk away and allow that to happen, right? You're going to kind of defend yourself. And, you know, what if I have loyalties to Capulet or if I have loyalties to Montague, right? One buys my bread all the time. And so he's a loyal customer. Do I not stand up for him? You know, and so that makes then an enemy out of the Capulets. And, and so there's blood on their hands now because they're getting forced to enter the fight to defend themselves, their property, their children. I mean, who knows? Right. But, we can tell that they're getting tired of it, as we'll see soon in Act 1, Scene 1. All right, so quatrain number one. Quatrain number two, we have some beautiful alliteration. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, right? Alliteration, the repetition of the initial consonant sounds, in this case, the F sound, from forth fatal foes. And so, in other words, the loins, you know, I don't get too graphic with that with my with my students, but, you know, I kind of, that area over there where you all came from, you know, they got to think about it, and they're like, ew, you know, that's kind of gross to think about, but that's where we all come from, at least if you're not born in a lab or something, and so we come from the loins, and it's fatal, right, because we know that they're going to die. Very soon, in the very next line, we're told that they commit suicide, and so... You know, some of my students, they get mad, like, oh, I didn't want to know the end. But but that's the point, though. The point is to know that they die at the end. So then the question no longer becomes, what happens at the end? 
the question then becomes, why did it happen? Did it have to happen? What could have been done differently to avoid this from happening again, right? Because as the audience, we're supposed to learn something from this. We're not just supposed to go there and be entertained. Shakespeare is still read today in America in 2023 because he's still relevant, because his themes were universal. It doesn't matter where you live in the world, you always have teenagers. You always have lust, which is misconstrued for love. You might, not always, but you might have instances of forbidden love, right? I mean, I've met just in my school alone. I've heard parents tell their kids, I don't want you to date or marry somebody that's not this color, that's not this religion, that doesn't speak this language, that doesn't come from this country, right? And the heart wants what the heart wants. I mean, we try to appease our parents the best we can, but at the end of the day, we have to live with that person for the rest of our life. And yay, my mom likes them. But if I don't, then what the heck am I doing, right? So anyway, so we have, again, the establishment that they are foes, right? These two households that are alike in dignity, right? That are breaking now into new mutiny and reigniting that fight between the families. Line six, then, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, right? They commit suicide. And they're star-crossed. And usually here, there's a lot of confusion or perhaps the fact that they are misconstruing the term. But star-crossed does not mean that you were meant to cross each other's paths and be together. We have to remember that Shakespeare is English. And we'll forgive him for that, but he was English. And so crossed... I always like to relate it to my students as, you know, if you've ever seen Thomas the Tank Engine, when Mr. Topham Hat gets cross with the engines, he gets angry. And so star-crossed means you have angered the stars. You're doomed. That's what it means. There are doomed lovers who are going to take their life. And why are they doomed? Well, the stars obviously had something else in mind. You know, Romeo, I contend, was meant to be with Rosaline, and I will defend that when we get into Act 2. And Juliet, I mean, I got to make a case for one of the characters, Paris. I don't think he is as bad as, um, I think, just naturally as an audience we tend to be. You know, we, we follow a protagonist, and for some reason, anybody who gets in that protagonist's way, we usually vilify, you know, and they become antagonistic, but... I don't really think there, I mean, there's antagonistic characters, but I don't think Paris is an antagonistic character. I think he's just a guy that, you know, has good intentions, uh, does things old school, as I'll explain when we get to those parts. And, uh, you know, unfortunately is a victim that gets in the way of this star-crossed love. All right. And so get that out of your head. Star-crossed does not mean they were meant for each other. It means that they are upsetting the stars because destiny had a different plan. And when you mess with destiny, well, you know, as they say, when man plans, God laughs. That's all I can say about that. So line seven. All right. So why are they going to take their lives? Because they have misadventured, piteous overthrows. In other words, they just have bad luck. Because again, destiny doesn't want them to be there. So all of their adventures will be misadventures. And it'll be piteous. It'll do nothing but bring pity in our hearts because it's so sad that it couldn't work out, but sometimes it doesn't. But with their death, line eight, it will bury their parents' strife. In other words, by the end of this play, the parents find peace. 
and they realize that what we have been fighting for all along has cost the lives of our children. And so they, they make a very beautiful um, dedication to each other at the end, which you know we'll talk about when we get there. So then, in the third quatrain of ideas, right, beginning with line nine now, right, because we're one through four, five through eight, excuse me, so now we're in line nine, which is the EFEF stanza or idea, right, quatrain, if you're paying attention. And it says, the fearful passage of their death-marked love, right? So now Shakespeare is going to give a summary, right? So their death-marked love, again, it's not a good thing. Their continuance of their parents' rage, right? So the parents are still fighting each other, which, again, not but their children's end could remove, right? So only the the death of their children was going to end this feud is now the two-hour traffic of our stage, right? So Shakespeare is basically telling everybody, look, if you, this play is for two hours, right? Give me two hours and you'll see what happens with these teenagers who fall in love, but it's not destined to work out. And there's these problems with their parents, um, is, you know, the story is going to take two hours. And so then at the end, you know, as he does in most of his, sum, uh, most of his sonnets, he summarizes, uh, th- what he has already said, right? So he says, if you with patient ear attend, right? So if for two hours you listen, what here shall miss, right? In other words, what I have not mentioned here in this, uh, sonnet, our toil, right? The play shall strive to mend, right? All the questions that you have that may not have been answered here in the prologue, obviously through the play will be then answered. All right. And so that's that's where we begin. And so when we get into Act One, Scene One, which I'm not going to do today because I think this has gone. Uh, I mean, I'm not complaining that it's gone a little bit long, but uh, I don't want to pack you guys with too much stuff. You know, I, I, I want to break it down nicely so that way it's in digestible chunks and you can really appreciate the play. OK, but when we do get to Act One, Scene One, it's going to open uh, with two members of, I believe, Juliet's family. And they're like in mid-conversation, which I just want to talk about really quick because I think it's really neat how, you know, Shakespeare was such a master at telling stories that he even knew, you know, styles that we have now. Like Quentin Tarantino does it all the time where when you, you put the camera on the people, they're already at the middle or at the end of their conversation, right? You didn't get everything at the beginning, but he gives you enough bits and pieces where you know what they have been talking about. And it's so cool to think that, you know, 500 years ago, William Shakespeare, you know, was doing the same things. Like he knew that that was a way to tell a story that the audience didn't always need to be privy with the entire conversation just to the parts that were relevant to the story. And so we're going to unpack all of that, right? You're going to discover how wonderful Shakespeare is. And I'm going to fall in love with him again because I just absolutely love this play. I think this is just, there's so much truth. There's so much if you're paying attention uh, that is relevant to life. And so hopefully you'll join me on this adventure. Hopefully I will see you next week and we will unpack all of Act 1, Scene 1, 2, 3, 4, and I believe there's a fifth one. We'll go all through Act 1. And hopefully... You know, you'll uh, you'll become more and more curious to know what's going to happen next and what exactly could have changed or been different to prevent this fate. Right. Because I really think that Shakespeare, you know, as romantic and beautiful as he writes in this play specifically, 
this isn't the ideal, you know, this isn't, Shakespeare's not telling us, you know, for centuries to, hey, go out there, teenagers, and, you know, lust away and misconstrue it for love, and then kill yourself, you know, because that's totally healthy. Like, I don't think Shakespeare was saying that. I mean, I think, honestly, Shakespeare is mocking teenage love. And when I reflect back on my, you know, years as a teenager, it's it's uh, it's good material for some comedy. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. And I don't see why anything would be different, right? I mean, it's still humanity. It's still a boy and a girl, you know, falling in love. And you'll see why, you know, as we go through the play, I put that in air quotes because, I mean, you can call it love all you want, but, you know, you can... You can put a piece of poo on a plate and call it filet mignon, but I'm not eating it. <laughs> so anyway, guys, God bless you. Have a wonderful week. I'll talk to you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.